All right, everybody. I think we're up and running right now. So I'd like to welcome everybody who is watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Interview Series. Uh, I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, hoping everyone continues to stay safe, healthy, and, uh, and hopefully everybody's doing their part to help us get through this pandemic. Um, for 14 seasons, we're going to talk about sports now. Uh, for 14 seasons, David Wright, as you can see uh, to my left on the screen, man the hot corner for the New York Mets, cementing his place as one of the greatest players in franchise history. Uh, before he was a Met, he was a player in Green Run Little League, a teammate on the Virginia Blasters, a Hickory Hawk, and a member of numerous minor league clubs on his way to the bigs. Uh, his journey from the 757 to the Big Apple is chronicled in his new book, The Captain, a memoir, which he co-authored with Anthony Tacomo from MLB.com. Uh, joining me today, as I already referenced, is the seven-time NL All-Star, published author, and the first person to actually be featured twice on the Hall Call interview series, David Wright. David, thanks for joining us today. Uh-oh, I'm, I'm losing you, Will. You still there? Are we still good? Now I got you. Now I got you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, for, 20, thanks for joining us today. 20, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I hear you. It just proves that this is live, that we're actually doing this in real time. <laughs> um, obviously, if you're following along on Facebook Live, if you have questions, please feel free to put them up on the stream and we'll try to get them over to David. Uh, but let, let's kind of kick it off with this. Books are a lot different than baseball. <laughs> what drove you to pursue this sort of project in retirement? You know, it's funny because uh, I, I give Anthony DeComo, the co-author, a lot of credit because I told him, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that Hickory High School in Chesapeake, Virginia is, is kind of the Harvard of high schools back home. But, you know, my my uh, my high school education. The people at Maury would have something to say about that. I, I don't think that my high school education would have allowed me to kind of do this on my own. So I appreciate Anthony kind of writing down to my level. You know, I, I make fun of him all the time. So, uh, you know, it was a fun project. When Anthony approached me, uh, I, I was hesitant because I never thought about doing anything like this. I'm a fairly private person, you know, but it was really cool to reminisce. And I think as an athlete, very rarely do you get to kind of look back on things when you're in the heat of the moment, look back on things and, and, and tell yourself, wow, that was pretty cool what I did last night or wow, that was a big win for us as a team last week, you know, but going through these memories uh, put a big smile on my face and allowed me to kind of reminisce and, and, and think about the good old days when, um, you know, I was out there playing third base and we were winning some baseball games. Did you learn anything about yourself during this process? Um, <laughs> well, you know, the competitor in me, you know, when you look back on a certain game or like a certain home run and, you know, I think that you always think that you're better than you were you know, when you look back on it, you felt like I was running really fast, you know, trying to score from first on that double. And you look back on the video and it's like, man, you know, I was kind of moving kind of slow. Um, or, you know, wow, I hit that ball. and That, that ball must have been in the second deck at, at Shea Stadium or City Field. And you look back on it, it barely went over the wall. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's it little things like that, that, you know, what I really enjoyed is my parents are still, you know, back home in Chesapeake and they're a bit of a... Um, pack rats, I would say they keep everything. And, you know, I told them I was doing this project and writing this book and that I wanted to put some family pictures in the middle of the book. And um, I said, I need some pictures. So go through, narrow them down. I need about 30, go through, narrow them down to a hundred, you know, send me about a hundred and I'll pick the best ones. And, um, you know, a, a week later I get four huge FedEx boxes on my front porch and it's thousands of pictures. So it was really cool to reminisce and go through pictures of, 
you know, my grandfather, my grandparents and I who have passed, uh, you know, playing baseball in the backyard, playing wiffle ball with them. Um, you know, early days of playing baseball, really, uh, uh, again, I, I enjoyed the process and reminiscing about those family moments. You mentioned the pack rat. I guess they hadn't digitized those photos yet. Of course not. I don't even know if they know, they know what that means. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> Well, I'll hold it up. As everybody can see, it is the book, The Captain, a memoir by David Wright. Um, you mentioned your relationship with, with Anthony Tacomo for MLB.com, and he's, he's been covering the Mets since he was an intern, and he actually references that in his acknowledgments. And uh, when, when he first came up, his, his mentor was kind of giving him scouting reports on all of the players as to who's a good quote, who's not, who to stay away from. And his mentor, and I asked him this question, his mentor told him, David is exactly what, who, what everybody says he is. Uh, what does that mean to you? And, and who is David Wright, if you had to explain yourself? Well, uh, his mentor was Marty Noble. And, um, you know, unfortunately, Marty's passed. But um, I remember my first time meeting Marty was I was in double A. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, the PR person, I guess, for our double A team came and, and told me that, hey, there's kind of a big time writer that wants to come interview you. So I was a little nervous. I was in double A, you know, I didn't, hadn't really talked to like the big time media yet. And I remember uh, Marty Noble come strolling in and sat down right next to my locker. And, um, you know, that was kind of my first, first memory of, of, of New York media. And um, he couldn't have been more gracious and, 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 and nice to me. And, and he handed the baton to Anthony Ducomo, like you mentioned. Um, you know, but uh, if you talk to anybody in New York, I think the media is one of the bigger challenges. And I think that's one of the reasons why maybe a lot of, of guys that come to New York for the first time maybe don't succeed right away because it, it is, it can be overwhelming. Um, you know, you certainly have to, make sure that you're a baseball player first and then do your media obligations second or, or things that you have to do. Uh, you, know, you have to get ready for the game is I guess what I'm trying to say. But, um, you know, I've always tried to be somewhat gracious with my time. I've always tried to be somewhat forthcoming, you know, with my answers that I've given to the media. I'd like to think that good game or bad game, you know, I'd be there standing in front of my locker answering the questions, whether I hit a game winning home run or whether I, you know, lost the game with an error at third base. I think accountability is extremely important. So, um, you know, I'd like to think I was that type of player. And I think that that's what my parents instilled in me at a young age. I remember, um, you know, my mother, and my father never getting upset at me if I, if I struggled as a amateur, you know, little league or travel ball or, you know, whatever high school ball. The only times I remember them getting upset with me is if I would fail and hang my head, or if I would fail and not root my teammates on, you know, if I struck out and went into the dugout and sat in the corner and hung my head and pouted, that's the only time I can remember them getting upset with me on a baseball field is if I didn't, if I wasn't that team player. Um, and that always kind of stuck with me even throughout my major league career. Well, that's a great transition into this next question. Your, your father, Ron's influence is, is prevalent throughout the book. Um, if you had to use one word to kind of sum up his approach or his influence on you, what would it be? It's gonna be tough to do it in one word. Um, he was a he was a Norfolk police officer. I would say a combination of um, discipline. Uh, I would say a combination of uh, you know kind of instilling a a foundation of you achieve things by how hard you work. So work ethic. Um, you know, it wasn't just baseball; it was school as well. I didn't get a chance. I didn't play baseball if I didn't make the grades in school. That was first and foremost in our household. Um, you know, so I would say uh, instilling that work ethic, that foundation of, of discipline in setting extremely high goals and doing everything you can to achieve them, whether it's baseball, school, 
life. You know, he'll, he'll be the first to tell you, my mother, the same way that they didn't set out to raise good baseball players. They set out to raise good citizens. Um, you know, and I think that that's kind of stuck with me. So I've always been cognizant, you know, when I'm around, especially young kids, that whether you like it or not, you're going to be a role model and that, you know, you want to make a lasting impact on, on those kids. So I tried to sign autographs when I could. I tried to do the right things. I tried to play the game the right way. You know, my mindset was every single night there might be a kid out there wearing a number five jersey with my name on the back that looks up to me because of what I do on the baseball field. And I don't want to let them down, you know, so I'm going to try to play well, but I'm also going to try to play hard and play the game the right way and carry myself correctly. Another thing, I mentioned your dad's Ron, your dad Ron's influence, but you mentioned a lot of the people who, um, who, who really played a role in your growth and development over the years. And it began with Towny Townsend, Alan Irby. But then as you get further into the further into baseball, you get into Howard Johnson, the Joe McEwings, Dave Racanellos. Is there something that they all had in common that kind of drew you to them and wanted to learn more from that specific individual? Well, I mean, I think that certainly I was, I gravitated towards people that I felt like I shared common goals with, um, you know, so I wanted to make correct decisions on the baseball field away from the baseball field. So I tried to surround myself with people that we had that in common, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, a lot of it's luck, you know, in what world does a 18 year old up and coming third baseman for the New York Mets get a chance to get paired with Howard Johnson and Ken Oberfell in the minor leagues, two guys that have world series rings as third baseman, you know, to, to tutor you, you know, for two or three years in the minor leagues. I mean, that's just flat out luck. And that's something where I, I was put into a situation where I was given every chance to succeed you know, with not just those guys, but other guys, you know, as my coaches, you know, pushing me to become the best third baseman that I could possibly be. During Kingsport, there, there was a point in the book where you're talking about your time in Kingsport and you really learned how to transition from working harder to working smarter. In baseball terms, kind of give us an idea of what that means from that perspective, <laughs> because it, it means something different to anybody. It could, you know, in the nonprofit world, it means one thing, but from your perspective, how, what, what was that transition from working harder to working smarter and how did it benefit you? Well, you mentioned earlier with, with amateur coaches like Tony Townsend and, and Alan Irby, um, you know, it wasn't just go out there and take a million swings. I, you know, I remember coach Irby wouldn't let us pick up a bat until we did our defensive drills correctly. And I remember going to my first spring training and, you know, 18 year old kids learning bunt defenses for the first time. And me knowing what bunt defenses were since I was 10 years old under coach Irby, we did bunt defenses as 10 year olds, you know? So I was so far advanced going into the minor leagues because of this area and because of the coaches that this area provided us young kids. So the, the advantage was incredible. So, um, but to answer your question, you know, it was, it was, I'll never forget it. Port St. Lucie, Florida. It's about a million degrees during the summer. It rains every day. The humidity's through the roof. Um, you know, I'd like to think that I was never tired. So I always, what my father taught me was this, this work ethic. So when you're struggling, you work your way out of it. And I mean, I was getting to the field in Port St. Lucie, you know, so many hours early and I was, I was hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting and more hitting and extra hitting. And, um, you know, our, our field coordinator, a, a gentleman by the name of Guy Conti, uh, approached me one day and he goes, look at these splits. And this was kind of before a lot of the analytics. And he's like, look at these splits. He goes, you're hitting about 400 on the road. 
and you're hitting under 200 at home. You know, let's go through your routine and see what you're doing at home compared to what you're doing on the road. And as a minor league on the road, you don't have the facilities. You take the team bus, you kind of take batting, you know, a few swings and batting practice and you, and you play the game. And he was like, maybe you're exhausting yourself pregame at home. So he cut back on the work that I was doing. He's like, we need to work smarter, not harder. You don't just take swings for the, take, for the sake of taking swings. You have to get something out of them. So I started cutting down my swings and really working towards the swings they were giving me finished the year strong. And that lesson stuck with me that, you know, you don't just go take a million swings for the sake of taking a million swings. You have to get something out of them. A hundred swings the right way is better than a million swings, just doing it for the sake of doing it. And that was a great lesson. Uh, I believe it was 2003 uh, in Port St. Lucie in the minor leagues. It's a great memory. <laughs> All the way back to 2003. Um, you know, you, you got to the bigs. Uh, obviously, you, you spent 14 years up there, but you've mentioned multiple stops along the way. Was there one stop that you feel benefited you more, regardless of how talented you are? And this goes for probably all athletes. There's always that one stop or that one coach where there's kind of that come to Jesus moment where, OK, you're good, but you can be better if you change your approach and do this. Was there one stop along the way where you think benefited you more than than the others? Oh, yeah. I, I doubted myself throughout. I mean, I doubted myself throughout the big leagues. I think that was part of my motivation is I hated to fail so much that you always had this self-doubt. Um, but uh, something clicked for me. We mentioned Port St. Lucie. I was invited to the Arizona Fall League, which is for a lot of top prospects from each team. Send a couple guys out to Arizona at the end of the season. And you play with other top prospects for, I don't know if it's a month, six weeks, something like that out in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And they send the top prospects. So I was pumped to get an invite after high A ball to go to Arizona, go to Arizona and you're seeing players that you read about, you know, in the publications, you know, that are supposed to be the next, you know, Ken Griffey's or, you know, Derek Jeter's and you read about these guys and you're playing with them and against them. So it really judges how good you are. And I played really well in Arizona and that springboard me into 2004. I started in Binghamton, our double A team got off to a great start. They promoted me to Norfolk, uh, at the time I stayed in Norfolk, played well for a month there, then got the call to, to the big leagues to New York. So I think that that Arizona Fall League kind of catapulted me, uh, both baseball wise and confidence wise. It gave me so much confidence that I could play with anybody. Um, and then I became, you know, a more confident player going into the minor league season in 2004 and ultimately ended the year in the big leagues in 2004. We actually have a question up on the stream. Uh, obviously, you just mentioned you, you got promoted to the Tides for AAA back when the Mets and the Tides were affiliated. And Harbor Park is a, is a hop, skip, and a jump away from where I'm sitting here in Virginia Beach. How special was it for you to, to play in your quote-unquote hometown, growing up in Virginia Beach, went to high school in Chesapeake, but you played for the Norfolk Tides? Oh, that was my big leagues at the time. I remember, like it was yesterday, um, you know, getting the call in double A, getting called into Ken Oberfell and Howard Johnson's office and them telling me you're going to triple A. John Stearns was the manager. And, you know, I remember uh, I went back to Binghamton. We were in, I believe in Maryland at the time playing in double A. And I, uh, maybe I flew back to upstate New York and Binghamton, grabbed my, my truck, Drove it to Norfolk and the whole way I'm like calling friends and family and so excited to come play at home in front of the because, you know, my How dad big was, was that cell phone back then. It had to be one of those bricks. <laughs> yeah, I, might have, I, I don't know what it was. It might have even been I had to stop on the side of the road and put some change into a payphone and call that one. Who knows? Um, you know, but it just just so exciting because, you know, I remember we went to the um, 
the inaugural game at Harbor Park. My dad was a police officer in Norfolk. So, you know, we'd go to go to the games all the time and, and being on the other side of the fence now and playing um, at Harbor Park for the Norfolk Tides uh, was just so, so cool. And I think it taught me so many lessons on how to divvy up your time, um, you know, how to prepare for a game while leaving dozens of tickets for friends and family and the distractions of friends and family wanting to go out to dinner after games or do this instead of me kind of focusing on playing baseball. And I think that really helped me prepare for time management skills, getting called up to New York. Again, for those who are just joining us, we're talking to David Wright, uh, 2020 inductee into the Hall of Fame, although we haven't been able to celebrate that yet per COVID. Uh, we're hoping sometime in 2021 to be able to do that. Um, but we're talking to him about his new book, The Captain, a memoir that he wrote with Anthony Giacomo from MLB.com. And last week, I did talk to Anthony and I asked him, you know, what, what does it mean to be a superstar for the Mets? Because the teams that, at least from our bubble down here, we hear about the Yankees, the Giants, the Rangers, the Knicks, for better or worse. You know, the Jets, Mets, and, um, and Nets kind of seem like the second tier. But Anthony was, was very you know, stern. And, and he said, if you ask anybody in New York, New York is a Mets town. He said it's just the fact that the Yankees are the ones who have the 27 championships. But he said Mets, the New York is a Mets baseball town. You played there. The fan base is extremely passionate. What did it mean to you that they embraced you and that the city embraced you um, as you be, as you progressed in your career? I mean, I couldn't agree with that statement more. I mean, it's it's the Yankees are and deservingly so with their history and what they've done, and you know, especially you know recently they've you know, been, you know, we went to the world series in 2015, but you know, the Yankees are the Yankees and they're always going to be the Yankees, but that city, I think bleeds orange and blue. I, th I think that they are, are starving for uh, a blue collar, bring your lunch pail to work type team that they can get behind and root for. And, you know, when, when we're playing well, you know, it with the, the, the Mets gear and the Mets flags flying, um, you know, it's a different type of energy. It's a, it's a blue collar, excited, um, just a, a neat energy when, when the Mets are putting a good product out there on the field. And, and um, you know, just, just obviously my greatest moments on a baseball field, the memories that stick out most are, you know, playoff games at Shea Stadium or playoff games at City Field and that place just rocking. And, you know, I remember Shea was literally swaying back and forth. They had Welcome to the Jungle playing our first, my first playoff game. We were playing the Dodgers. I run out on the field and it's Welcome to the Jungle. And it's, you look up to the upper deck and it felt like it was like, like a little earthquake going on. Just the, the bleachers swaying. It was just so cool. But, you know, I would agree that, um, you know, New York is a National League town. And, you know, obviously I'm biased, but, um, you know, it, it's just, it, it was so much fun. And I took so much pride in putting that uniform on because of that fan base and because of the energy that that fan base, base brings, especially when you're playing well. You wanted to play the game the right way. And I don't think that there's any doubt that you did. And you also wanted to respect your opponent, but there was an exchange between yourself and your former manager, Willie Randolph in 2005, early in your career, you slid hard in a second to break up a double play. You then helped the middle infielder up and asked if he was okay. Um, what did Willie say to you when you got back to the dugout? And how did that kind of help you become a better teammate and get a little bit more perspective into this game of Major League Baseball? You know, that was, it was great. It was an eye-opening moment for me, um, you know, because, 
my, my first minor league season in Kingsport, Tennessee, we were playing like the second to last place team. We were in last place. It was the last game of the season. And I think it was like a tie game base hit. I was on second. I ran over the catcher and broke, ended up breaking his leg at, at home plate. And, you know, I remember the coaches and the players telling me, Hey, you gotta be smart, play hard, but, but play smart. Don't be stupid. You know, when you're playing the game. So, you know, from then on, you see a lot of other players that have friends on the other team and they meet at center field pregame and they're shaking hands and giving hugs and, you know, talking this and talking that. And, and, you know, I, I wanted to kind of fit in, so I didn't want to be a jerk. So I kind of did the same thing and, you know, the camaraderie between the teams and, and, you know, I remember breaking up a double play. I tried to go in hard, break it up. And I helped the, the shortstop or the second baseman up. And I got back to the dugout and Willie pulls me aside. And he's like, what are you doing? And I go, what do you mean? What am I doing? He goes, why are you helping up the, the opposing team? And I didn't really have an answer. And he goes, you know, take them out to dinner after the game. You know, if you want to go get a meal, go for it. But when you put this uniform on and the other guys wearing the other uniform, you're looking to beat them. You know, you're not looking to disrespect them, but you're looking to play hard and beat them. So I don't ever want to see you helping somebody up after you try to break up a double play again. And that was cool to me. And that stuck with me. And I, I tried to limit the amount of times that I'd go, you know, be social with other players while I was wearing the uniform. Um, you know, I'd give Zim or the Uptons or Kadai, or I'd give them like a little head nod or tip my cap. And that was kind of the extent of it because of the lesson that Willie taught me that, hey, you're competing against them. You know, they're trying to beat you. You need to try to beat them and no disrespect, but you need to play hard, knock them on their butts and leave them down there and don't try to help them up. Yeah, that, that definitely had to be tough, particularly from your perspective. I mean, you just mentioned some of the other names, but these weren't just acquaintances. These were guys that you played on AAU teams with or, or all-star teams with locally. So these were friends. But, you know, once you once you punch in that time card, you know, you're working for the Mets. Um, but I think that that in reading the book, that exchange really kind of set the stage for you becoming the future captain of the Mets. That really kind of showed you what your responsibility was to your teammates. And in, in, re, in going through the, the exchanges and how you became captain, it was very important to you that your teammates made that decision because management approached you about it. And you said, I want my teammates to make the, the ultimate decision. Why did you choose that approach? And, and how important was it to you that your teammates pretty much voted unanimously? So I don't, I'm not a, a overly vocal guy. I don't yell and scream. You know, I don't, um, I, you don't do stuff for the sake of doing it in front of cameras. That's not genuine. Um, and when management, the front office ownership approached me about being the fourth captain in team history, um, I was honored, certainly, you know, but I wanted it to come from my teammates. I wanted to be viewed as a leader and a captain by my teammates, not necessarily the front office and ownership. So I asked them very politely that, you know, I think it's the onus is on you guys to go around the room, um, you know, obviously without me knowing and go individually, whether it's a guy that had 20 years of service time or a rookie and make sure that this, that everybody is in agreement that they view me this way. Cause I, I don't want the title for the sake of having the title. You know, there's gotta be some punch behind it where, you know, if I'm going to be captain of this franchise, I'm going to take it very seriously. And to this day, it's the biggest honor that I've ever received on a baseball field. But, um, but people, the guys in that clubhouse need to view me that way. Cause that's the most important. So, you know, I had them go around and, you know, if they didn't feel comfortable, if it was a young player, if they didn't feel comfortable, you know, saying things to management, you know, I asked, you know, veteran guys to go to the young players and make sure that they're okay with it. Um, 
you know, but ultimately that was, that was of the utmost importance because I wanted to be viewed that way from within the, the clubhouse or the locker room, not necessarily, you know, an honor given to you, you know, by somebody that's not in the clubhouse as much as, as the guys are. Another thing that I found really refreshing uh, about the book is, is your openness and your willingness to really kind of talk people through your, your injuries and your rehab and, and everything that went on. I mean, the, the process just seemed, I mean, I don't even think rigorous is the right term because you would be in Florida, you'd be in California, you'd be back in New York, Virginia. Um, you know, you went into a lot of detail about it. How difficult did it become those last four or five seasons just hitting the field and then having to come off the field and then going through rehab? Just how difficult were those last few seasons for you? Uh, it was impossibly difficult. I think that, you know, I was lucky where I went, you know, a decade or even more so pretty much scratch free, you know, where, you know, I saw these older players getting hurt towards the end of their careers. And I'm like, that's never going to be me. I don't get hurt. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm indestructible. Um, you know, and then fast forward to that time, you know, it was physically, obviously, you know, uh, my physical issues ended my career, no doubt, but mentally, I think it was just, just as tough where you think that, you know, my back, for instance, it's, it's something that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. It's not a hamstring strain where you're out for two, three, four weeks and you come back good as new. You know, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around that if I'm going to do all this rehab and I'm going to put all this effort and this time in, that it's never going to be fixed. It's just going to be manageable or hopefully manageable. And that's tough to, you know, do these, these two-a-day rehab sessions on your back. You do everything possible. Then you wake up the next morning and, you know, it's, you can't bend over to tie your shoes. It's, it's mentally, it just beats you up day in, day out. You wake up and the first thing you think about is, okay, how's this feel today? How's this feel today? Is it going to be a good day? Is it going to be a bad day? You know, and, and, and it was a big hurdle for me, um, you know, and I wouldn't allow myself to give up. And I think that that's one of the main reasons why, you know, I was willing to share or write the book was because, you know, I didn't want to be defined by my injuries towards the end of my career. You know, I, I didn't want to be the person that, um, you know, when you ask about somebody that, oh, he was the guy that was hurt the last two or three years of his career. You know, I wanted, you know, I knew it, you know, but I wanted, you know, my kids, I wanted to know, you know, that you work at something and you give it everything you have. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But you put your head on your pillow at night and you sleep well, knowing that you put in everything that you possibly could to get back on the field. And for me, it worked out, albeit a, a short amount of time, you know, but uh, it wasn't for lack of effort because I, 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 I certainly exhausted every opportunity to, to get back out there. I think pretty much every Mets fan and uh, probably Virginia baseball fans will remember that last weekend series against uh, the Marlins, your, your final appearance in a Mets uniform. Um, but when you, when you read the book, and again, I don't want to give everything away. I want people to buy the book for you guys, but um, there was a lot that went into that and it, it wasn't a guarantee. And you had to talk to management and you guys found the right series on a scale of one to 100 with 100 being your peak. Like where were you going into that game? Cause it, it, it wasn't very high. Was it? Oh, physically, it was way low, way low. <laughs> was, um, you know, that's when I knew that physically I just couldn't do it anymore. I was playing in some rehab games and I hadn't shared with management how badly I was feeling. Um, you know, I shared it with my family and I shared it with, uh, you know, one of my agents who, you know, is a close friend. And then I just told him like, you know, my, my mind kept telling me you can do this, that one day you're going to wake up and be fine. And my body was like, no, you're, you can't do this. And I was playing in these rehab games and you have to do this 
this buildup where you play like three innings and then five innings and seven innings. And ultimately you got to play nine innings back to back to, to, you know, to check off the list to, to come back um, from your rehab assignment and playing the game to me, it wasn't playing, it was surviving. It was doing everything I could to not get hurt. And I hated playing that way. I hated feeling that way. Like it was like, don't hit me the ball because I might have to dive and I might, you know, it might set me back two weeks if I dive funny or, you know, if I swing, you know, I don't want to check swing because it might throw my back out for, you know, you know, there's like these thoughts going through my mind where it was just like, just survive the game. So you could check it off the list. Oh, and, and while you're doing it, you're feeling terrible. You don't, I mean, it's just this, it was this mental hurdle where finally my, my mind and my body match where it was like, physically, you just can't do this anymore. And, um, you know, but that, that weekend, um, besides physically, obviously feeling terrible was one of the most special things that, you know, for, for New York to give a send off like that um, really shows the, the, the appreciation and the respect both ways. I wanted to thank the fans. I wanted to thank the organization for 15 years of, of, of this tremendous relationship and the way that they came out in full force and, and, and thanked me. Uh, you know, I got emotional. I'm not an emotional person, but, you know, it was just this, 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 this love that um, I don't think a lot of athletes get a chance to feel playing in New York. That really came out uh, as you told that story in the book, how much it meant to you, your family, your friends, uh, the fans, just the organization. It really was kind of a team effort to put that final weekend together. Um, I, I told Anthony last week uh, in our conversation that after reading the book, the thing that really struck me um, as kind of a theme was, was loyalty, but not necessarily you demanding loyalty from people, but how you returned that loyalty to people who showed belief in you over the course of your career. And that's all the way from, you know, youth baseball through the bigs. Is there a message that you want people to take away when they read this book that's different from that? I mean, I would say, um, and one of the, you know, selfishly, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that so I could give this to my kids down the road. I got three under the age of five, you know, to say, look, you know, set your goals high and, and don't let anybody tell you that you can't, you know, I was, um, my playing career, I was six foot, barely over 200 pounds. When I looked out on the field, you know, I was playing against Jeter, Barry Bonds, A-Rod, Griffey, you know, like guys that uh, these hall of famers and every day that I took the field, I thought I prepared better than everybody on that field. So for that one game, you know, I told myself, I'm going to be the best player today, no matter who I'm playing against, because I'm more prepared than them. So it's not, it's, it's this, and I know it's a cliche to say, but, but set those, set that bar so high and do everything you can to accomplish them. And if it doesn't work the first time, keep fighting, keep trying to accomplish that goal because there's too many people out there, you know, too many negative people saying that you can't do this, you can't do that. And as soon as you start buying into that, you can't do something, you, you can't, you know, so it's, it, it's, it's this ultimate challenge of, you know, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, set the bar high and, and, and try to accomplish those goals because, you know, my parents would be the first one to tell you if, if we could have gotten some money to go to college on scholarship to go to college and play baseball and get my education somewhat paid for, that's a win. I mean, if you could just go learn life lessons through team sports as a kid, that's a win. You know, you don't have to be a professional baseball player to, to succeed in sports. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's the accumulation of, of, of learning these life lessons and, and applying them to everyday life. I think that 
that sometimes kids forget when playing team sports, in particular baseball. And I think that's something that my coaches, my youth coaches from back home, really pounded into us was that, you know, these are life lessons taught through baseball. And, you know, something that I'll forever be thankful for because, you know, I'm going to teach my kids the same thing that you may not be the best baseball player or basketball player or whatever tennis player, but you're going to learn some very important life lessons while competing in sports. And I think that that's very, very, very helpful. I think that's a great message uh, coming even better coming from a seven time all-star, but you know, youth sports participation uh, is going down. And I think a lot of times it's because people, it's, it no longer becomes fun because everybody wants their kid to be the best. And there are so many benefits to playing youth sports physically, emotionally, from a personal development standpoint. Um, and, and I encourage everybody to read the book because you're going to see that message throughout. And it's a great book. It's a great chronicle of your career, as I said, from the 757 to the Big Apple. And uh, I got the book at Barnes & Noble, but it is available anywhere you can get books. So please be sure to pick up a copy if you haven't already. And, and David, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. We always have a great time talking baseball with you. So thanks for taking some time out today. Well, good. Hopefully the next time we can do it in person. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> We're actually looking forward to the day when we can uh, somewhat get back to normal and celebrate the class of 2020, although that will be in 2021, but it will be the class of 2020. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, anybody who's out there, we're, we're still kind of up in the air there. But I'd like to thank David again for joining us today on, on Hall Call. I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in. And of course, all of our partners, Priority Automotive, City of Virginia Beach, DAVCON, Optima Health, ESPN Radio, and the Hampton Road Sports Commission. Uh, be sure to follow the Hall on all of our platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, all at VA Sports HOF. Uh, once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and hoping everyone stays safe, stays healthy. And if we don't talk soon, have a happy holiday season.